It's written by Jude, about whom we don't know much, but he was the brother of James, who was himself the brother or half-brother of the Lord Jesus. So Jude was, um, Mary was his mother, and Joseph, we take it, his father. And I'm going to read the first seven verses from this letter this morning. So let us hear God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So let us pray as we hear these words preached to us. God our Father, we ask that you would give us humble hearts, open and attentive ears, that we might hear your word with understanding and respond with the obedience of faith. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, my friends, I've been beginning to grapple with Jude's short letter. And this morning I want to set before you something very beautiful, wonderfully beautiful, and something deadly poisonous. And I want to set them both before you as Jude does, because there's a superficial similarity between the two. It's almost as though you open a cupboard and you see two bottles that look a little bit similar. And one bottle contains a a life-giving, health-giving medicine, and the other contains a deadly poison. And what I want to do as, as we begin to work through this letter of Jude is to help us, as it were, to put our glasses on, to read the labels and to see which is which, because it's a matter of life and death to grasp that. Uh, Jude, as I said just a moment ago, is um, he doesn't call himself a brother or half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't want to draw attention to that, but his readers would all have known that. He says he's the brother of James, meaning James, the brother of Jesus. 
James, who was one of the first leaders of the church in Jerusalem, um, uh, and one of the, the, the family whom Joseph and Mary had after Jesus was born, uh, just in normal family life, and Jude seems to have been, well, was one of those. And he writes this letter. There are, there are quite a lot of similarities between the letter of Jude and to Peter, Peter's second letter. Now, if you read to Peter, don't do it now because you're meant to be paying attention, but um, if you read to Peter later, you'll see all sorts of similarities between the two. And it seems that the church or churches to which Jude wrote and the churches to which Peter wrote um, were, were, were suffering the same kind of problems, the same kind of crisis in, in some respects uh, at least. Now, Jude, with great spirit-given pastoral wisdom, begins his letter with tremendous pastoral comfort, and we'll see that at the beginning of the letter, and he's going to close it with memorable words of pastoral comfort. In between, there's considerable darkness. There's some puzzles, but there's some very dark things in between. But in his God-given pastoral wisdom, Jude begins, as he writes to this church, by giving them something about the wonderful comfort of the privileges of grace. I want to say two things this morning, and that's the first one. Be comforted, wonderfully comforted, by the privileges of God's grace. And we'll take this from the first two and a little bit from verse three uh, as well. And it is the most marvelous beginning. In verse one, uh, Jude writes to those who are called, beloved, in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude, incidentally, he loves threes. We'll see a number of threes as he goes through. So when you hear a modern preacher with three points, you just need to say to yourself, he's not the first. And Jude loves threes. But he begins with this marvellous threesome, called, beloved, kept. All three were said in the Old Testament repeatedly of Israel, We had it in our call to worship in Isaiah, Israel whom I called. Israel is frequently called beloved and Israel will ultimately be kept. But I want to pause on on each of those three, called. Not just in this context, the general invitation to all, the gospel invitation that is given in the scriptures to everybody, come unto me, all who labor, says Jesus. And repeatedly the invitation of the gospel is given without restriction to everybody. But called here means something stronger. It means what we sometimes call an effectual calling. It means something that God does by his Holy Spirit in you or me, so that when we come to Christ, whether in childhood or adulthood, we put our trust in Christ and we do so freely, but we discover, perhaps afterwards, that God has been working in our hearts by his Holy Spirit so that we will freely respond to him. And it has its roots in a great covenant or whatever you want to call it between God the Father and God the Son in eternity in which Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 6 in in which God the Father gives men and women and children to Jesus to, to, to the Son before the incarnation in eternity and Jesus says yes I'll take them and I will call them and I will raise them up on the last day and therefore if you belong to Jesus and you say to yourself, I'm a man or a woman who is called, 
What you're saying is, my identity as a believer does not have its roots in a human decision that I made, although by God's grace I did, and so did you if you're a Christian. But it has its roots in this calling in the heart of, that comes from the heart of God in all eternity. And there's a wonderful privilege and security in that. It's the most marvelous thing called. And then along with that, beloved, having been beloved, still beloved, always beloved in God the Father. It's a slightly unusual expression, beloved in God the Father. But the, the, the sense is that God the Father, who is the fountainhead of all the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit towards men and women, that that love has, as it were, enfolded you, that your birth was the outpouring of the love, your preservation that you're still alive today is the overflow of that love, your new birth by the Holy Spirit is the working of that love. God's providential government over every day of your life is soaked in that unchanging love. Nothing that's happened to you, nothing that will happen to you, nothing that can ever happen to you will be anything other than the outflow of the love of the Father towards you. Beloved in God the Father. Called, beloved, kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. Some translations to say kept by Jesus Christ, and that's also true, but I think kept for Jesus is probably right here. Kept through all the ups and downs of life, through all the joys and sufferings of this age. Kept in the face of trials of temptations. Kept in sickness. Kept through death itself for that great day of being a member of the bride of Christ on his wedding day. Kept for Jesus. It's not easy to imagine a privilege higher than this, is it? My friends, the privilege of being called beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. But there is more, because in verse 2, Jude goes on. May mercy, peace, and love. Here's another threesome. Mercy, your sins forgiven, and that forgiveness refreshed, as it were, day by day. Mercy in times of sadness. Peace in seasons of turmoil. Love, as the Holy Spirit pours the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into your heart and soul, be multiplied to you. So the life in which you live, if you live in the grace of God, is a life in which mercy, peace, and love are continually poured, overflowing into your life. What an amazing privilege. And there's a little bit more, because in verse 3, Jude says, I really wanted to write to you about our common salvation, that is, shared salvation. So Jude is saying, all this called, beloved, kept, mercy, peace, love, all of this is shared, which, of course, is part of what we celebrate when we meet, like this, that this is a shared thing. We have brothers and sisters all through history and all over the world. And there's more because he, he, he goes on to talk about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That God has given us the faith, something that's objective and true and unchangeable. And he's handed it over to all the saints, all the believers, all those who will be in Christ in every age. So that we don't need to invent it or reinvent it. We speak it in the language of our country and our day. We don't speak it in the language of 
fourth century Latin of Augustine, much as I love Augustine. We don't speak in the 16th century Latin or French with Calvin, much as I love Calvin. We don't speak it in the 17th century English of the Puritans, much as I love the Puritans. We speak it in the language of our day, but what we speak is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So what a privilege. What a wonderful thing to rejoice in if we belong to Jesus. Be comforted by this, beyond measure, by the privileges of God's grace. And Jude is going to finish his letter with a similar sort of comfort. But, here's the second thing. If the first thing Jude says is, is, is be comforted, be amazed, be filled with wonder and joy at the, 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 the privileges of God's grace. The second thing, and this is moving into the heart of his letter, beware of privileges without true grace. Because the point that Jude is going to make is that you can enjoy some of the privileges, at least outwardly, without really being changed by grace. So he says in verse 3, I found it necessary, urgently necessary to write. And that's what this letter is, appealing to you, appealing to you, urging you to contend, to struggle for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's probably worth saying that he's not here talking about campaigning in the public square, although there's no doubt a place for that. He's not writing to elders or pastors, ministers. Um, Plenty of the New Testament is, and there's much that our elders and ministers need to do to guard the church. But Jude is writing just to ordinary Christians, and we'll see later what he means by contending in verses 20 through 23 um, later on. But notice verse 4. Verse 4 is really goes to the heart of the letter. If you get verse 4, you can really, you, you, you've got a kind of compass through the puzzles of the, the letter. Because he says, this is why I, I've got to write like this, certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've infiltrated into the church. And it becomes apparent that they're not just members of, ch- of, of the church or churches to which he writes, they're, they're people who have influence. They influence others within the churches in some way. And we'll see that, that later on. And you get that again and again in the New Testament. You get it in 2 Peter chapter 2. You get in Galatians chapter 2, false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in. You get it in 2 Timothy 3, where you discover people who have the appearance of godliness and uh, deny its power and they creep into households. So, so... What's happened is there's been an infiltration of people. Now, it's probably worth saying that just because here at CPC we're having a series of sermons on Jude doesn't mean that people have crept in here unnoticed, um, although if they had, we might not notice. But um, it, it doesn't, I mean, you, you look at some other churches, you might look at the Church of England at the moment and think, well, the letter of Jude, as a Baptist friend of mine said to me, the letter of Jude is written for the Church of England. And um, he's got a point. Um, but what it means for us is, is not that this is necessarily happening, but it means that it could. And it means that no church is immune to the dangers of which Jude writes. He writes to warn us that these things can happen. And we'll see how easily they can happen, I think, later. 
These people are described as people who long ago were designated for this condemnation. He's going to talk about their condemnation later in the letter. And he's saying they, they, they were designated. This has been written about before. This is not a new thing. It's not a surprise that this should be happening to the people of God. It's happened all down the history of the people of God. That, that, that people have crept in and caused trouble in this sort of way. He calls them ungodly people. And he uses that word ungodly again in verse 15 three times and in verse 18 again. It's quite a theme word of the letter. They're ungodly. You look at their lives and their lives are not God-like lives. And what they do is described in two ways. First of all, they pervert or change the grace of our God into sensuality. And the word sensuality often is associated with sexual immorality and impurity. But it's actually a broader word than that. It means anything which involves the trashing of God's moral boundaries. Anything that involves the breaking of God's moral boundaries. And we'll see that this business of of boundaries between right and wrong is really important. And they change the grace of our God into sensuality. And you ask, how do they do that? Well, surely they're very different things. You talked about these two bottles that look similar, one containing medicine, the other poison. But it's not that difficult to see how they might do this. They change grace of our God. And the Apostle Paul was accused of this. When you read in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3, and in, especially in chapter 6, as he preached the free grace of God... And he said, because of the death of Jesus, you come to belong to Jesus, your sins are forgiven, you contribute nothing to it. This grace is completely free. Um, People were accusing him and saying, well, if that's the case, isn't that marvelous? Now our, our sins are freely forgiven, we can do what we like. In fact, some of them said... Um, the, 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 when God is gracious, God is honoured. So surely the more we um, sin, the more God will be honoured by forgiving us. Uh, you, you see this in Romans chapter um, 6, in verse 1 and verse 15. So presumably they were doing something like that. And they were saying this preaching of the free grace of God is marvellous because it takes us out of a world um, in which we feel guilty into a world in which we can do what we like but we no longer feel guilty. And what's not to like about that? That's the kind of appeal that they were making and there was something about it that was plausible and dangerous and I'll come back to that later. Jude describes it also in a second way. He, 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 he says in verse 4, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So they do this subtle switch from free grace into do what you want. And also, another way of putting it is, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The word for Master is a very strong word. It's often used of God the Father in the Bible. And, and now it's used here of Jesus, our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so the question is, what does it mean to come into faith in Christ? And it raises the question of law. We said the Ten Commandments earlier, those ten great headlines that the Old Testament says were written by the finger of God in Deuteronomy chapter 9, written on tablets of stone, those moral headlines, each of them standing for a whole area of unchangeable right and wrong, nothing to do with culture, changing morality. And, 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 and we, we, we said those words earlier, it's good for us to, to say that. But what happens when Jesus comes and dies for sinners? It's really important to get this. So these people were saying, well, it's marvelous that Jesus has come to do this because now we're free to do what we like without feeling guilty. And there's a wonderful freedom in that, they said. But actually what happens is that we come under Jesus, our Lord and Master. And what happens, it's not that we come into a world with no moral boundaries in which we can do what we like. We come out of a world with no moral boundaries, a world of moral chaos and ugliness and death. And we come under the lordship of Jesus, our Master and Lord, into a world in which the Ten Commandments that we've said becomes the law, not just as it were written on the wall, as it is in some old church buildings. It's a good thing to have them on the wall. Uh, We're not free to do it here. Um, I think we might get into trouble with the school if we did it here. But it's a good thing to have the Ten Commandments there. But in Jesus, those words written on the wall become words written on the heart. And so he brings us into this world of moral order under his mastery and his lordship. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it's really important to understand that. Now, in verses 5 to 7, he begins some Old Testament examples. He says, if you want to know what I'm talking about, um, think about these things. And again, it's another threesome. Um, So it's not just three points, it's several lots of three points. But um, here's here's the threesome. Verse 5, he gives three Old Testament examples. Verse 5, Jesus... Rather unusual to have Jesus as the subject there, but it does seem that's what he says. Who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who didn't believe. And that's what we had in our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 1. People who'd been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and slavery to the pharaohs. And they'd come in the great events of the Exodus. They'd come through the Red Sea. They'd been saved. They'd been rescued in that sense out of slavery. Enormously privileged. And yet, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we heard in Psalm 95, in the wilderness, they showed that they didn't really believe. And they never entered the promised land. And so Jude says, remember that. You know that. You once fully knew it. You know this. There's nothing new about this. Here are people who had enormous privileges, but they mistook privileges for real grace. Now, the second example in verse 6 is, is one that's really puzzling to us, the angels. And it's probably, well, it's almost certainly um, a reference 
to a strange event recorded at the beginning of Genesis 6. Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4, where the, the sons of God, or angels, these creatures who are real, who are, as it were, above us, but not gods, um, and who have some role in, the, in God's government of the world. We'll think about them more, I think, next week as well. It's quite important to get hold of this, that, that the angels are real and that, that they're unseen for the most part, but they're real. And they do um, have a place to play in God's government of the world. But some of them, in verse 6, did not stay, did not keep within their own position of authority. So they had this position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, and so Jesus has kept them in chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And you read in Genesis 6 about these, these angelic creatures uh, in a position of authority, and they, they saw the daughters of men, they saw attractive women, and they thought, oh, that would be nice to have them as our wives. And in some strange way, they crossed a boundary they crossed a boundary between the, the place where they ought to be in the created order as angelic beings, and they crossed a boundary to be with these, these women and to take them as their wives. So they didn't stay in their own position of authority. They left that. They, they crossed a boundary um, uh, to, to do that. And Sodom and Gomorrah are the third example in verse 7, and the surrounding cities, Admar and Zeboim, and again, each of these examples, the people coming out of Egypt, enormously privileged, but not really changed by grace. These angels, enormously privileged, but abusing their privilege and crossing, to a, crossing God's boundaries. And then Sodom and Gomorrah, enormously privileged. If you look later in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham is giving his nephew Lot the choice, where would you like to live? And Abraham, uh, Lot looks at the Jordan Valley, Genesis 13, which is where Sodom and Gomorrah and the Admar and Seboim were. And he says, it's amazing, it's beautiful, it's well fertilized, it's like the Garden of Eden. It's like Egypt, the Nile Valley, it's a wonderful place. And so Sodom and Gomorrah and these other cities were in a beautiful, beautiful place where things grew and enormous privilege. But you read Genesis 18 and 19 and you read the terrible story of their sin and you read of their destruction and you see that that privilege is no substitute for real grace. And you read in the scriptures and you find Sodom is described in Isaiah 3 as a place of blatant in-your-face sin. In Jeremiah 23, it's a place of adultery and deceit. In Ezekiel 16, it's a place of pride and excess of food and prosperous ease. And in Genesis 19, it's a place of homosexual violence and heterosexual abuse. It's a dreadful place in which moral boundaries have been trashed. So all these three examples that Jude gives us are examples of people who had wonderful privileges. So here's the thing. It is possible for you or for me to, to, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, to taste something of the goodness of God, to have some real experience of the love of God amongst his people, to know something about what it feels like to be amongst Christ's people. 
But privilege is not the same as life-changing grace. As Paul writes in Romans 2, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now here's the thing as I draw to a close. My worry as I've been preparing to begin this series on Jude is that Jude may be exactly what you and I don't need to hear. I'll tell you why. My worry is that because Jude is speaking about things that for the most part, most of us think, that's not me. So you read the wilderness generation, you think, that's not me. You certainly read about these angels crossing a boundary and you think, well, that's not me. You read Sodom and Gomorrah and you think, that's not me. And I'm so glad that I'm not like that. There are all these dreadful people who are like that. And if the letter to Jude, uh, letter of Jude leaves us there, then we're in real trouble. You hear warnings about false teachers in churches and you say, well, I can see that for the Church of Scotland. I can see that for the Church of England. I can see that for the Presbyterian Church in the USA and for quite a few other churches, but not for us. We belong to a church where the elders and the pastor take great care that we take the Bible seriously. So this isn't us. So my fear is that this might feed our self-righteousness. But here's the thing. I think Jude is saying to us, it's really easy for real life-changing grace in a church subtly to metamorphose, to switch, to be perverted, to be changed into something where you and I begin to say, Moral boundaries don't really matter so very much. And my problem is, and it's a problem for a preacher, it's much easier to preach against the sins to which you're not particularly tempted. It's much easier for us to hear preaching and to think, well, I'm jolly glad the preacher gave that rotten old lot a good old going over. We love that. There's something about that in us that likes that, and it's really, really dangerous. I amplify the sins to which I'm not particularly tempted And I screen out the respectable sins, the hidden thoughts of lust, the self-pity, the love of comfort, the discreet gossip, the grumbling, the backbiting, the playing just a little bit loose with the truth, the harshness, the malicious thoughts, the resentment, the bitterness, and all these things to which I am very, very prone. I screen out. And Jude would say to us, and certainly to me, these moral boundaries matter hugely. Don't just think about the moral boundaries where where you're thinking that rotten old lot have crossed them. There's always a danger for any of us in Christ that we begin to mistake the privilege of being in Christ, which we're going to rejoice in in the Lord's Supper in just a moment, that we mistake those privileges for just beginning to take the moral boundaries less seriously. So here's a diagnostic question as I finish. And I'm I'm not asking you to, to answer, but except to yourself. What particular sin are you combating, fighting at the moment? If you're going to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints... There should be an answer. It may be a private answer. You may not want to tell anybody else. That's fine, as long as there is an answer. 
If you say, yes, I am, I'm struggling against this temptation, I'm conscious of this temptation, of my stage of life and for who I am, I'm fighting this and praying for God's grace to fight this temptation, that I may honour this God-given boundary. But if the answer is, well, to be honest, I'm not sure, I don't seem to be struggling against temptation very much, then dare I say it, you're in great danger. You and I ought always to be, to be saying, yes, I am. I'm taking moral boundaries of God seriously. Whether I'm old or young, man or woman, whoever it is, there's something I'm fighting against temptation by God's grace. And so as we come very soon, in just a moment, to share the Lord's Supper, let us bow our hearts in fresh repentance before Jesus, our Lord, our Saviour, and our master. So that what is seen amongst us, as it seems to me wonderfully it is seen a lot, is the beauty of lives that have come into this world of moral order and that we guard ourselves against this distortion, this change, where it becomes a place of ungodliness in whatever form it may be. Lord Jesus, our Master and our Lord, we thank you that you have welcomed us by your grace into this life of moral order. And we pray that something of the beauty of that good order might be seen in the life of each one of us here. We ask it for your namesake. Amen.